Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Subnet Show. I am your host, Gabriel Cardona. And as you can tell by looking around the screen, my amazing co-host, the man with the most cats in crypto, is having some downtime to recharge his battery. And so I am flying the ship solo, but fear not, dear viewer, as Freddie Mercury would say, the show must go on. And so it is, the ball is rolling. And so I was thinking about what uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about this week. And I realized that last week, whenever I demoed my demo from the Berlin ePre, um, where I showed how to spin up a subnet, launch an instance of the Avalanche virtual machine, and then add five subnet validators, all using Avalanche JS, that got a relatively positive uh, reception. I think people were sort of digging getting to check out how things work a little bit uh, on the technical side. And so I thought maybe this week we'll do something similar. This week, I thought we would do a deep dive on the Avalanche virtual machine. And so um, I've spent a lot of time working with the Avalanche virtual machine and all of the virtual machines on our primary subnet and doing serializations for them in Avalanche JS. And so it's something I'm very familiar with and I've been working on recently. And uh, so I think it's uh, something that we can have a good conversation about. So I think the, the flow of the conversation will probably go, we'll talk at a super high level, you know, what is a virtual machine? How does it fit into the Avalanche network architecture? What is the purpose of a virtual machine? And we'll kind of get more and more specific to where we will then talk about the virtual machines on the primary subnet, there's three. Um, the C chain, the P chain, and the X chain are the blockchains. And then we will uh, have a handful of scripts I want to run in, in phase three. So we'll actually run some TypeScript and we will, the five different types of virtual machines that are live on the Avalanche virtual machine, I'm sorry, the five different transaction types that are part of the Avalanche virtual machine, we will deserialize each one of those, an example of each one of those meaning we'll literally get you know, the um, hexadecimal encoded string or the CB58 encoded string, and we'll break it into its individual components down to the byte level. We'll see the individual bytes that map to the different parts of the transaction, the inputs, the outputs, the um, asset IDs, the transaction IDs, all the different stuff, it'll be pretty rad. So um, that's, and then I have a little bit of alpha at the end. I'm going to drop a, a cool little script that shows something I've been working on, which will soon be released in Avalanche JS. So that's it. So I think first we want to approach, uh, we want to talk about like, what is a virtual machine? And so how does it fit into the Avalanche architecture? So um, I'm going to uh, fill in a lot of back knowledge here. So if you are a seasoned Avalanche developer, some of this stuff you may already know. So, you know, bear with me as I kind of fill in the back knowledge because um, the barrier to entry on our platform is relatively high. And for me to speak about some of these concepts, it's going to be required to know for sure that you, dear viewer, have the required back knowledge so that I can be confident you're not just like, what's, what's this dude talking about? So I'm going to be filling in some back knowledge that you may already know. So Avalanche is a network of networks. It's, it's, it's unlike you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, for example, where there is one virtual machine and then one set of validators. So you know, in Bitcoin, you have the Bitcoin virtual machine and the Bitcoin miners, and that's it. In Ethereum, you have the Ethereum virtual machine and the Ethereum miners, and that's it. Avalanche has a primitive called a subnet, which we make available to developers. And a subnet is a dynamic set of validators working together 
to come into agreement on the state of a set of blockchains. That is the technical definition of what is a subnet. A subnet is a dynamic set of validators. So it's a dynamic, meaning you can add or remove them. And it can be a spectrum of public to private. And then a dynamic set of validators working together to come into agreement. So that's consensus, right? Consensus is the process by which a series of individuals come into agreement on a decision. So a, a subnet is a dynamic set of validators working together to come into consensus on the state of a set of blockchains. So that implies that you can have more than one blockchain on a subnet and that these validators are keeping track of the state of these blockchains. And that's exactly what a, valid, a subnet is doing. And so um, in Avalanche, anybody can spin up their own tailor-made network. It's like very, very straightforward. In fact, that was what my demo was last week. Remember, we spun up a subnet and launched a virtual machine on it in three minutes and added validators. And so the, the rad thing is, is that these subnets get out of the box all of this avalanche functionality. So you get these thousands of transactions per second, this sub-second finality. Um, soon you'll be able to move assets between the subnets at a native protocol level. Today you can do it between the virtual machines, but not yet between the subnets, but it's on our roadmap. And today, today you can just build bridges. You know, you can do the traditional bridging architecture. I'm just, you know, I prefer stuff that's native to the protocol. Obviously it's a smoother experience for a developer uh, and that's coming. We will have cross subnet asset transfers as part of Avalanche. It's just, it hasn't happened yet. We already have it at the virtual machine level and the blockchain level. So already you can do cross subnet or cross uh, blockchain transfers which we're going to demo at the end of this. And so, um, you know, a, so start out, what's different about Avalanche, we have these subnets. Well, the subnets have virtual machines that get launched on them as blockchains. And so the, the way to wrap your mind around this paradigm is think about a object-oriented programming. So in object-oriented programming, you have a class and a class is like a description. It's a template from which you can instantiate many, many, many different instances of this class. And all of these instances are objects. And each one of these objects, though they may have derived from a common class, a common template, a common description, they are all unique and logically separate entities and they have their own state. So that's a super high level of what is object oriented. So that same paradigm with virtual machine and blockchain. So a virtual machine is to a class as a blockchain is to an object. So a blockchain is an instance of a virtual machine. A virtual machine is the application level logic of your blockchain. Um, and you can instantiate as many one of these uh, instances of this blockchain as you want. And though all of these blockchains may derive from a common template, a common virtual machine, they are all unique and separate and logically independent entities with their own state. And so you can even launch an instance of the same virtual machine multiple times in a subnet. So you can spin up a subnet and just launch like 10 instances of the EVM that can all do cross EVM asset transfers. And for whatever reason, you know, you, you make your own architectural decision, but that's, that's a possibility. You can launch more than one subnet or one virtual machine on a subnet for what it's worth. Despite the fact that we have three virtual machines launched on our primary subnet, um, we suggest that you only spin up one uh, virtual machine per subnet because that way you get all of the throughput and all the finality just on your single uh, 
blockchain. And in theory, it will be so already you can do it with bridges, but once it's on the subnet, once it's on the protocol level, it will be so simple to move assets back and forth between the subnets that you might as well just spin a subnet up for each virtual machine, each blockchain, because then they all get the maximum throughput and then they can just cross uh, subnet asset transfer so easily anyway, it's not a big deal. That's the thinking there is, in theory, you should only be spinning up one blockchain per subnet, but you can do as many as you want. That's not at the protocol level. It's just something we've come to suggest as a best practice. So let's dig in one little layer deeper here. Technically speaking, a virtual machine is a state machine. Okay, so you have the state of your blockchain, a state transition function, transactions, and then an API through which users can interact with your blockchain. And so why is this all important? Because if you zoom out the super highest level, if you abstract everything away, really all you've got with a blockchain is you've got this state machine, you've got some state. And then you can transition into a different state and there's a state transition function. And then how do you get the data that allows you to build state number two, right? If you're in state one and you go through some state transition function, what was in the state transition function? You can dial that in by the transactions. So that's what the transactions do. If you call a um, create asset transaction, it's going to cause a trigger a state transition function that creates a new asset, creates a mint output, allocates some of this asset to certain different users with certain permissions. And so as a blockchain developer, as a um, virtual machine developer, you really need to like figure out what your transactions are. And then ultimately you just need to be able to parse, verify, accept and reject. And then above and beyond that, it's incredibly expressive. So you can do anything you want with these virtual machines. They're incredibly, incredibly expressive. And so um, a virtual machine really, really was, you know, zoom back out to the original question. What is a virtual machine? How does a virtual machine fit into the Avalanche ecosystem? You know, a virtual machine is the application level logic. That's the state machine. It's what allows you to transition um, between different states based on your transactions. And so again, as an application developer, as a blockchain developer, you need to figure out what your transactions are. And so now I want to dig into the um, actual code. Let me share my screen with y'all one sec. All right, you should be able to see my screen now, it appears. We're still recording, all is well in the hood. Um, okay, so now what we wanna do is we wanna kind of dig in and talk about the different transaction types. Let's jump on over here. So, boom. As I mentioned on our primary subnet, we have three virtual machines. We have the Avalanche virtual machine, we have the platform virtual machine, and we have the Ethereum virtual machine. And again, in the context that a virtual machine is the template and a blockchain is the instance, then you should know on our primary subnet, we don't actually have the AVM, we have the X chain, which is an instance of the AVM. And it's X, like the letter X. And we got that from X changing assets because the AVM is a direct acyclic graph. It's a DAG and it has partial ordering it's parallelizable and it's prunable and has super high throughput, 4,500 transactions per second, sub-second, immutable, irreversible finality. And um, it has what's called feature extensions. So you can plug in functionality to the uh, AVM or the X chain 
and there are three currently that ship with it. We have SecP assets, so that's AVOX, and then you can issue your own variable and fixed cap assets. Variable and fixed cap asset mean you can either mint more of this token in the future or not. If it's a fixed cap asset, when you create it, there will only ever be 10,000 of this particular token or it's variable capped, which means in the future, you can say, ah, oh, you know what? I think we need to print or mint another 20,000 of this new token. And so that's the difference between variable and fixed. And then um, the second feature extension is NFTs. So it has its own NFTs. They are not ERC um, 1155 and 721 compatible, and they do not bridge over to the EVM. The other assets, what I just mentioned, the SECP assets, the variable and fixed cap assets, we call those ANTS, Avalanche Native Tokens. And you can actually bridge those from the Avalanche virtual machine into the Ethereum virtual machine and wrap them in a what we call the ARC20 interface. And it's basically the ERC20 interface, and it allows you to take these Avalanche native tokens, tokens which you issued on the exchange, and to wrap them and use them in uh, smart contract functionality on the Ethereum virtual machine, which is really incredibly powerful. But you can't do that with the uh, exchange NFTs. So just so we're super clear about that, you can with the SecP assets, which are the first feature extension. You cannot with the um, NFTs, which are the second feature extension. Um, the next thing is um, you can... Make sure everything's right. Check, check. Okay, just want to make sure everything's on the up and up. Um, that is the base transaction, or uh, I'm sorry, that's the Avalanche virtual machine. Uh, next, we have the uh, Ethereum virtual machine. I want to go to the other end of the spectrum. So this is a DAG, and it uses UTXOs. So it's a directed acyclic graph that has partial ordering, and it uses UTXOs. The Ethereum virtual machine is a linear blockchain. It has total ordering. And it uses accounts. If you've ever used Ethereum, you're familiar with accounts. You just have one address that you use. And there can be accounts that are owned by the smart contract, or there can be externally owned accounts. So, you know, um, it's just your identifier and your Ethereum address. Um, and in Bitcoin land, in Litecoin, in Bitcoin Cash, any of these UTXO systems, um, Avalanche Virtual Machine, there's something called UTXO, it's different than an account. It's very much like if you were just keeping track of your change in the money in your hand. So you start out the day and you have a nice crispy $5 bill and you go somewhere and they charge you 250 and you give them five. So you, so you say, I'm gonna use this bill right here. It's worth five credits, five whatever. So they take it, they give you back two $1 bills, one, two, and then two quarters, bing, bing. So you have two $1 bills and two quarters. Those are like your unspent transaction outputs. So when you go to the next place and they want a dollar thirty-five, you ask yourself, do I want to give them the two one-dollar bills and they'll give me back some change, or do I want to give them a one-dollar bill and two of them? I forget what number I said, but I believe the thirty-five. So we need to give them both quarters. The question is, you want to give them two one-dollar bills or one dollar and fifty cents? Um, it depends what you're, do you want more change in your hand? Then you would give them the two $1 bills and you would have more change. If you want to get rid of some change, give them the $1 bill and the two quarters, and then you'll get back 15 cents in change and you'll have a dollar and then the 15. And so you, that, that might sound tedious because you're probably saying, so I have to keep track of every single unit of every single bit of value. In theory, you do. Um, 
but of course you can abstract that away in libraries and wallets and it's 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 not so tedious that it hasn't been overcome by bitcoin and litecoin and all these other systems right so it's different than the account model where you just have one address and you always send money to the same thing uh, send tokens or whatever to the same address and it's just got some balance that goes up or down you don't have to keep track of any of that it's way more tedious than that but it's not so tedious that it hasn't been overcome and it has its own pros and cons. Again, if you want to do commutive transfers, super simple token transfers or value asset transfers, um, which could be payments, point of sale payments and simple tokens, uh, the, the DAG is a great data structure because you get thousands of transactions per second and this sub-second finality and you don't get that on the Ethereum virtual machine. It takes a lot longer for this transaction to settle simply due to the architecture of the, the, the virtual machine. And so um, the Avalanche virtual machine is really useful for, again, if you want to do commutative transfers because it's prunable and it's parallelizable and it just gets insane throughput. We also have, again, the EVM, and the EVM um, is the Ethereum virtual machine. It has 100% backwards compatibility with existing Ethereum developer tooling. So if you have built anything with MetaMask, Remix, Truffle, Hardhat, et cetera, et cetera, you simply need to add either our local network, our test network, or our main network as a new network ID in your Hardhat config or Truffle config or your MetaMask add a network uh, screen. And you can just deploy your um, existing Ethereum virtual machine uh, work to our network with very, very minor um, changes needing to be done. It's because we're literally, our C chain, our EVM is in 100% backwards compatibility. So, you know, it's the, the amount of work needed to pour your app over is literally just changing a couple configuration variables. It's pretty cool. And so then in the middle, we have the platform virtual machine. And this is kind of like a breed of the two. I mentioned the Avalanche virtual machine is a DAG that uses UTXO. The EVM is a linear chain that uses accounts. The platform virtual machine is a linear chain that uses UTXOs. And it is our, uh, like our administration chain. And you can use it to add validators. So a validator is when you stake um, 2000 transactions. So really quickly, um, so those are the three different virtual machines, right? So we have the AVM, the EVM, and the platform VM. Now, um, just really quickly brushing over the transactions, and then I want to drill down into these. So, so to, to, to um, brush up the EVM, just to kind of close it down, it's, a, it's an instance of the EVM, and it has, you know, 100% of the, everything the EVM does. So if you're familiar with the EVM, I, it's all in here by default. We graft it on, if you will, the import and the export transactions. So again, in the future, it, it'll be similar for cross subnet asset transfers. There will just be an API that your virtual machine needs to implement. And by implementing that virtual that API, you will then just be able to be plugged into the rails for moving assets back and forth. And that's the way it works today with this import export transaction that you see is implemented in all of these virtual machines. They all speak this common interface. And so we have what's called atomic UTXO. Basically there's this UTXO set, which sort of exists independent of every of any specific virtual machine or blockchain. We call it the atomic UTXO. And if you're on this chain, for example, the AVM and you wanna to export to the platform VM, you just create an export transaction. You plug in, you know, just set on the rails that exist between these virtual machines, just by the fact that they both implemented this import and export transaction interface. You just set your tokens on those rails and call the export transaction and say, I'm exporting to this P-chain address on the P-chain. 
and then you'll have a UTXO that all of a sudden is chilling in the Atomic UTXO set. And then on the platform VM, you can call an import transaction and you say, hey, give this address, my P chain address, any Atomic UTXO that are coming to me from the X chain. And sure enough, you have that one that's chilling there, and boom, you'll get the Atomic UTXO over here and you've transferred assets across. And you can do the exact same you know, thing on the other side export from the P chain, import from the uh, X chain. And all of these chains allow you to swap in between them. And so it's really, really cool. If you've ever done cross chain swaps on bridges or whatever, it's just so much smoother at the protocol level. Right now it's two transactions, an import and an export, an action on both sides. But I'm positive on the roadmap, there's been this, I forget what it's called, but there's the idea of doing a single transaction to you know, make this even smoother, right? Like, um, the UX could be cleaned up in that one regard. It's currently two steps, which I don't mind so much because you just have UTXO and a UTXO set. Uh, they, it happens to be atomic instead of on the one virtual machine, but it's the same thing. If you have UTXO sitting on the X chain or if you have UTXO sitting in the Atomics UTXO set, what's really the difference? You have UTXOs chilling somewhere, right? That's how I personally view it. I guess the difference would be you might be able to see it in different wallet balances and stuff. But with regards to are the UTXOs safe and happy in their home? Sure, they're chilling in the UTXO set that's atomic as opposed to one that's mapped to a virtual machine. So um, now let's talk about the platform VM and then we're going to drill down into the actual technical specification of the AVM. The platform VM is our administration chain, as I mentioned. It allows you to add a validator. So this is when you stake 2000 AVAX and you actually make your node a full validating node, which means it will, based on its weight, be sampled to create the next block or the next vertex. Um, whenever you add a validator, you can only validate between two weeks and one year, and you have to stake at least 2000 AVOX up to 3 million AVOX, that's the cap. And, um, Whenever you set up your validator, you can have other people delegate. You'll notice there's an add delegator transaction. You can have other people delegate some of their AVOX to you. If they don't want to run their own node, if they don't have 2000 AVOX to stake, they can delegate uh, 25, at least 25 AVOX to you. And that will increase your weight, which increases your uh, statistic probability of being sampled in the next round to create the next block or vertex. And so, um, you can charge them a fee for that. So whenever you call add validator transaction, not only are you setting the amount of time, not only are you setting the amount that you're staking, you're also setting a, um, a rate, a fee that you will charge other people to delegate to you. Next, you have the add subnet validator transactions. So as I mentioned, as you can see down here, we have the create subnet transaction. Creating a subnet on Avalanche is incredibly simple. You can see it's literally a single transaction call, create subnet transaction. Once you have a subnet, you need to add validators to it. And so again, there's the add subnet validator call. It's pretty much the same as the add validator call. There's a couple of gotchas here. One that comes out, I mean, immediately you have to pass in the subnet ID, obviously. So you will have had to call this beforehand, or if somebody else has, you know, in theory, you're adding your validator to a subnet. So you need the subnet ID. And then the amount of time, you can only have your node validate a subnet for a subset of the amount of time that you, your node is validating the primary subnet. So one of the hard prerequisites, I should say, of 
validating your own subnet is that you have to have a node validating the primary subnet. That's the one hard rule. So our primary subnet today has like nearly 1600 full node, full block and vertex producing validators, 1600. I think it was like 1576 when I looked uh, a couple of weeks ago. So close to 1600 full block and vertex producing validators. Theoretically, Avalanche consensus can do millions of validators, but of course that's never been tested in the real world. But we used to be able to run on IoT devices like the Raspberry Pi, but lately, you know, maybe in the past, not lately, but in the past year or so, that's not been possible. But that's really just engineering coding uh, reasons. Um, there could be optimizations made to what allow us to run on the IoT again. That's definitely on our roadmap. It's been something we wanted to have again. It just based on how fast the code has been growing and so much functionality, we need to, you know, uh, sort of do some architectural step back and figure out there's ways we can optimize things to get back on the IoT. Because in theory, we would be able to run on every type of device and that would get us to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of validators. We have to find that sweet spot. What is the exact sweet spot? We don't know, but we know that theoretically we can handle millions of validators, which is pretty rad. Um, there's the add delegator transaction, as I mentioned, that allows you to stake, if you will, 25 AVOX or more, I don't know if there's a cap. I think the cap might just be the 3 million that you can validate, add to a validator. Uh, but you add your weight to a validator and that increases their weight. I, as I said, increases their statistic probability of being sampled in the next round. And you get back some of the um, AVOX which is created and they take a, their fee off the top. You also have the create chain transaction. This is how you create a virtual machine into a blockchain. Basically, you pass in a subnet ID. You say, on this subnet, I'm going to be launching an instance of. You pass in a virtual machine ID. There's a, a RPC call that you can call on the JSON RPC that allows you to get back a list of virtual machine IDs that you can then say, I'm launching an instance of this VM on this subnet. And then you do what's called a subnet auth transaction, which is like this multi-sig type of thing we'll dig in in the future. And then you launch this instance of a, a virtual machine as a blockchain. Next is the create subnet transaction. So as you might imagine, this allows you to create a subnet. So you know, after you create a subnet, you need to add validators and launch a blockchain on it. But this is the very first step. So it would go like step one, launch the subnet. Step two, launch the blockchain. Step three through eight, add validators. We suggest a minimum of five validators. But if you have reasons that you can use less or more, it's up to you. Um, obviously that's up to you. We suggest five. Um, and then there's the import and export transaction, which I mentioned are the critical APIs to implement in order to have rails to move assets back and forth. And then now there's the Avalanche virtual machine. And this is the one we want to deep dive on. And so we're going to talk about all of these transaction types, and then we're going to actually run scripts which show them. So right now we're actually going to dig down into the bits and the bytes of the code. This will be the first time you start seeing some hexadecimal. We're going to see a lot of hexadecimal and a lot of CB58 encoded strings. CB58 is our base58 encoded string with a checksum. If you're familiar with base58 check, if you work with Bitcoin or Ethereum, or no, it's in Bitcoin, I believe, primarily, and you've ever seen um, base58 check, then you're familiar with, you know, there's a base58 encoding. Um, this is our base58 encoding with a um, checksum. So the uh, first thing to mention here is the um, different types of uh, transactions. So as I mentioned earlier, when you have a virtual machine, 
and it has um, transactions. Check, 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 check. Are we still recording the sound? Check. Um, when you have a virtual machine and you want to trigger the state transition function, you have these different transactions. And the best way to think about this again is like object-oriented programming. The base transaction provides you the um, base of moving ABOX and moving SECP assets back and forth. And each one of these other ones inherits the full functionality of the base transaction and then adds its own little bit of special sauce on top. And so the um, create, uh, let's first let's dig in on the base transaction. I don't think so. I think we're still good. Yeah, there we are. We're good. Need a little graphic to make me feel good about myself. Uh, the mute, just so you guys know, the little um, microphone mute wasn't reflecting that I was talking, and I didn't want to think that I was talking while being muted the whole time, but it, it appears we're good. All right, so back on track. Um, the base transaction allows you all of the core functionality you need to be able to move AVOX and SECP assets back and forth. And so there's a couple patterns here that we're going to see repeated over and over. So the first is that every one of these data structures in our uh, uh, transaction specifications all have IDs, identifiers. And that's because we're serializing these big data structures, their JavaScript classes, which we're going to show you in a second. And then they're basically, you know, serializing, they're dehydrating down to this big string, ultimately a buffer, a JavaScript buffer, which is a JavaScript data structure for handling binary data, right? So you're ultimately taking these data structures and serializing them down. So they all have these identifiers. So whenever you have these big long strings of data, you can find the different components in it whenever you need to rehydrate or deserialize back into a big data structure. And we're gonna show you all of this here in a little bit. So you will actually, uh, once you work with this hexadecimal and this API long enough, your brain will actually develop the muscle memory required to um, spot these data structures in the wild. Whenever you're just uh, looking at a huge string of uh, text, you can be like, oh, there's a type zero base transaction. We'll see that in a minute. I'm actually gonna show you what I'm talking about. So uh, all transactions, all of them, because if you remember, they all inherit all of their functionality from the base transaction. Every transaction, all five have a type ID, which each one of the other ones won't be zero, of course, and they'll change that. Um, they all have a network ID. So remember, Avalanche is a network of networks. So this network ID allows you to route to the right network. They also have a blockchain ID, and this is a 32-byte identifier. And the reason this is so great is it's used for replay attacks replay attack prevention, I should say. So if you've ever worked in a blockchain which has forked, so for example, when Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin Cash and there's been a ton of forks around that whole era, lots and lots of Bitcoin forks, but even, um, yeah, any basically any network that's forked, for the brief moment when they first fork, there's this potential for an attack called a replay, a replay attack where somebody can take a transaction that's valid on one network and replay it on the other and move funds because the networks are still basically the same. So unless the developers on one of the sides is gracious enough to implement replay protection, you have this attack vector called a replay attack and it sucks. And it happens until the networks 
their states change enough, something gets introduced in some way, which is non-backwards compatible, at which point it's like they're two separate species and they can no longer crossbreed or whatever, right? But there's that one moment where they're still close enough on the evolutionary tree where you can attack each other. Not possible on avalanche, because imagine the scenario, or remember a virtual machine is a template. Imagine somebody takes a virtual machine to the X chain and launches three or four of them on the same uh, subnet. Would you be able to do replay attacks across the different blockchains? Because they're basically the same exact blockchain. You would not because encoded into the transaction is a 32-byte identifier for the blockchain ID, which is going to be unique for every single instance of the virtual machine. And so if you took a transaction which is valid on blockchain A and tried to replay it on blockchain B, it would complain because blockchain A and blockchain B have different blockchain IDs. So that's pretty rad. We have baked in to our protocol. We have replay protection. Replay attack protection. And again, if you've ever worked, replay attack prevention. Again, if you've ever worked in a uh, ecosystem where you dealt with replay attacks, it, it sucks. It's like incredibly headache central that we don't have that at all. Next, we have this idea of um, outputs and inputs. And so if you've ever dealt with UTXOs, unspent transactions uh, outputs, you know that basically whenever you create a transaction, as I mentioned with the cash analogy, you have to get some inputs. These are the things you're going to spend. And then you have to create a new set of outputs on the other side. This is like the change after a transaction. And so the inputs are like literally pointing to the different bits of money you have. I want to use that $1 bill and I want to use those two quarters because we're paying $1.37. So those are my inputs, this $1 and these two quarters. And then on the other side, I'm going to have the change for that, right? The 13 cents and it's going to be one dime and three pennies. And that's going to go back into my UTXO set, right? So then I'm going to have a $1 and 13 cents. If my math is correct, I'm going to botch that by a penny or two, but I think you know what I'm saying. And so that's how UTXO works, input and outputs. And what's cool about um, Avalanche, the AVM, is that we have different types of outputs and different types of inputs. And we also have what are called operations, which are similar. And so, you know, whenever you include inputs, you can uh, have different types of inputs, which we're going to explore in one second after we just wrap out the last thing that's involved on every base transaction. And that is the memo field. So every single transaction, because if you remember all of the other four types inherit all of the base transactions functionality, all of the different transactions are able to write a 256 up to 256 bytes of arbitrary data. And so, you know, if you cleverly encode something, you can pack a lot in 256 bytes. In fact, all of the um, Bitcoin token stuff is all built on this idea that Bitcoin has this uh, op code called op return, and op return allows you to write up to 80 bytes of arbitrary data on the blockchain. I know Bitcoin caches is 220 bytes, and Bitcoin cores, BTCs, is 80 bytes. And so um, people are able to encode in this 80 bytes or 220 for BCHs the um, issuing assets transferring assets, minting more assets, burning assets, all of the different actions that you would do when dealing with tokens. People have encoded those into those op return outputs. And then they have wallets that can pull those uh, encodings out and decode them and make sense of them. And that's how SLP tokens work in Bitcoin Cash. And they're incredibly cool and they're super lightweight and they're, um, they're great. I worked with them for a long time. Um, Somebody could implement something like that on the, 
on the uh, AVM, <clears throat> although you wouldn't need to obviously because we have tokens built in native to the platform. But for what it's worth, you could literally follow that exact same model. <laughs> That'd be great to see somebody implement SLP as a hackathon project on top of uh, the X chain. That would make my day. And so, um, but, but a more practical use of it is to write some type, literally a memo, to use it for accounting. You can use it if you're sending money across the bridge. You could use it as bridge instructions. Um, I use it extensively. So in all of our examples today, I believe literally everyone we use it. And it helps me because I look at the code a lot as hexadecimal. You're going to go with me on that journey today. And so um, it helps me as a, it provides me with a um, roadmap. I will look up and I'll see the memo and it helps me know where I'm at in the code. And you'll see what I mean in a little bit. So um, that's the memo. It can be up to 256 bytes. And now let's go back to the inputs and outputs. So um, here again, you can kind of see the Gantt uh, specification. And down here we have a proto specification and then we have an example. All of this is in our docs, docs.avox.network. Go check it out, the specs tab. Uh, this is all great. This is down to the bits and the bytes about how all of our different virtual machines work. Um, you can implement this in any language you want, right? This has been implemented in TypeScript for Avalanche JS. It's implemented in Go for Avalanche Go. We used to have a Python client. Uh, I've seen somebody working on a Rust client. So, you know, this can be written in, you can implement this in any language you want and we give you the specs to do it. And you can even go look at how we've done it in Avalanche Go and Avalanche JS to get a sense of, you know, what is, what is idiomatic and what is not idiomatic. So the inputs and outputs, think about it like a box, it's an array. So you know, if you're a programmer, you know an array is just a data structure you can put other data structures into. So it's like a box, right? It even looks like a box. So you can put transferable outputs and inputs into this box. Well, what exactly are transferable outputs and inputs? Let's go look at the docs. So a transferable output, has an asset ID, okay, fair enough. And then it's got an output. And if you scroll down over here, you see that there are actually four different types of outputs. So, you know, to kind of think of that at a higher level, uh, whenever you're creating the SECP transferable outputs, which is part of the base transaction, you can be passing in four different types of things there and they can, you know, as many of, as you want of any of them, if that makes sense. So you can already get a sense that, um, the AVM's API is very expressive because all of a sudden you have this idea of transferable outputs, which is like this generic box, which wraps around a SECP transfer output. So this is a transfer of AVOX or a transfer of your variable or fixed cap asset. It has a SECP mint output. So this is required to mint more of your custom token. Whenever you do the operation transaction, which we actually will demo at the end of this, you pass in the mint output and consume it. And that gives you like a one-time authority to mint more of these tokens, which you do. And then you create yourself another corresponding SECP mint output to be able to mint more in the future. That's how that workflow works. Um, there's also uh, an, a transferable output of type NFT transfer output. So again, the AVM has its own custom NFTs. They are not ERC-721 or ER-1155 compatible. They do not swap across the um, import and export rails to be available to be wrapped as a ARC-721 or anything like that. But they are like, in the same way that the AVM is really good for commutative transfers, it does, you know, the uh, point of sale cash transfers or 
um, lightweight token transfers, very, very fast and efficient. The same thing with these NFTs. So these are like a collectible um, kind of paradigm. And they, again, uh, they are supported in our wallet. So if you use our web wallet and you go to the portfolio section, you can actually see these NFTs and they're pretty cool. And so um, one of the four types of transferable outputs is an NFT transfer output. And then lastly, we have the NFT mint output, which as you might imagine, is required to mint more NFTs. So I didn't, I didn't say it, but in the former one, if you want to transfer an NFT, you have to call an operation transaction and you have to consume this NFT transfer output. And then you can move the NFT as a transferable operation, which we're going to talk about next. And then you can create as an output a new NFT transfer output. So it allows you to transfer them again in the future. And it's the same thing with the NFT mint output. You have to call an NF you have to call an operation transaction and consume this as one of the inputs. And then you have to um, create yourself a new one on the other side, as well as minting whatever tokens you wanted. And so those are the transferable outputs. So I had mentioned, you know, like, what is the transferable output? It's kind of just a box. You have an asset ID on it. And then inside of the box can be any one of those other four, a SecP transfer, SecP mint, NFT transfer, and NFT mint. And you can pass in as many as you want of each one, right? It's because if you remember on the base transaction, the transferable inputs is an array. It looks like a box, right? So it's a variable linked data structure. You can pass in as many as you want. So just imagine you're packing up a bunch of boxes and you have a bunch of, you have five SecP transfers because you're moving as a box to three different people. And then you're moving your custom token to two different people. And then you have um, a SecP mint uh, box because you need to issue some more of this token. And then you have an operation transaction that allows you to call those operations and move those assets and issue the new tokens. And so next we have the SecP, uh, we have transferable inputs and it's similar to transferable outputs. It's an array and it can set, accept a variable length um, number of transferable inputs, but there's actually only one type of transferable input. And that is the SecP transferable input. It's a type five. Oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't list those other types. I do want to do that real quickly. So if I go back up here and say the transferable output, it has an asset ID, but the individual types, a SecP transferable output, which is just moving AVOX or moving one of your custom tokens is a seven. You'll see this a lot today when we get to the hexadecimal. Uh, mint, a SecP mint is a six. NFT transfer output is a B which is what in decimal 10, 11, 11. So um, it's a B, it's of course hexadecimally encoded. And then a mint output is an A, so that would be a 10, because it's hexadecimally encoded as well. So in decimal it's 10, hexadecimal it's A. And then you also have the SecP transferable input. So those are the transferable outputs. You have those four types. Then you have the SecP transferable input and it has a type five. So it's very common for me to see a type five and a type seven. A seven is a transferable output of AVOX or custom token. It's usually AVOX because there's a lot of AVOX that moves around. And then the input, the corresponding input is of type five. That's a SecP input, right? I've got to consume this input to produce this output and then the difference is the, the fee. So input minus output equals fee, the fee gets burned. And so that's the way that works. And then, um, so that's the base transaction, right? So at the super high level, 
we just went over what's in the base transaction. It has its own type ID, which is zero. It has a network ID that allows it to route to the right network because Avalanche is a network of networks. It has a blockchain ID, which prevents replay attacks. It's built into the protocol level. So there's no way you can take a transaction and replay it on a, uh, a similar instance of a virtual machine because encoded into the transaction is the blockchain ID. It also has a variable linked array of outputs that can be of type SecP output, SecP mint, NFT output or NFT mint. It has a variable linked array of inputs. There's only one type, which is the SecP transferable input of type five. Then it has a memo, which is 256 byte string arbitrary. It can be empty if you want it to be of data that can be used for whatever you want. And that's a base transaction. And that's sufficient to cause a state transition function between one state of your uh, blockchain and another. And the difference between them is gonna be the assets that you moved around in these inputs and outputs. And so the um, next one we wanna look at is the create asset transaction. And you can see here, if we go look at the Gantt specification of the base transaction, and then you look at the Gantt specification of the um, create asset transaction, you can see that um, in the create asset transaction at the top, it says base transaction. So you can imagine if you're taking all of this functionality that exists in the base transaction, and you're just copying and pasting, pasting it to right here. So that's what I was saying, it's similar to object-oriented programming. All of these assets are inheriting all of their functionality from the um, base transaction, and then they're getting their own little special sauce at the end. So literally, whenever we see this as a transaction serialization, we'll see an entire base transaction serialized, including the memo. And then after that, we'll see the name, the symbol, the denomination, and then the initial states. So this is when you're creating your own variable or fixed cap asset, what we call avalanche native tokens, ants. This is how this is done. And um, so um, whenever you're doing this, you um, pass in a name, which is going to be obviously the name you want your token to be. You pass in a symbol, which is the ticker symbol. You pass in a denomination. So this is how many you know, periods you, or how many zeros you want after the period. Uh, Avox is nine. So you can have a dot and then nine numbers after a, a, an Avox unit. Uh, it can be no more than 32, but it can be up to 32. And then you have a, an array of initial states. So an initial state is going to be a couple of, it could be a couple of things. It can be a, um, some of this new token that you're issuing, you can immediately give some of it to somebody. So right, you can create some SecP transfer outputs here type seven, and you'll give them to somebody and say, hey, you're immediately getting some of this new coin. Here's the balance. You can do multi-sig here. You can do time lock. So you can say the two out of these three addresses need to sign to move these funds and you can't do it for one year from today. But here is some tokens going out to this multi-sig account. You can do a lot of cool stuff here. And then you also create your mint output. So you remember in the future, if you're going to... Um, create, if you're going to transfer, I'm sorry, if you're going to mint any of this asset, you need a mint output. So this is the time that you create that mint output. It's one of the initial states. So that's how that's done. And also uh, similar, if you're creating an NFT, you would do the NFT transfer output or the NFT mint output, what happened to happen here. And then, um, so that's the, the create asset transaction, which we're going to look at here in a second. Again, this creates an avalanche native token. Avox, the Avox token, 
though most people use it um, on the C chain, it was actually issued on the X chain. It's an X chain asset. It's an ant, an avalanche native token. It's a fixed cap asset. There will only ever be 720 million AVOX. We know exactly how many there are. And so that gives us similar economics to Bitcoin, but the uh, we're able to use it in smart contracts in a way which is native to our platform, which gives it a little bit of the Ethereum vibe. So it's a little bit of the best of both worlds, but yeah, Avox is a fixed cap asset. There will only ever be 720 million. It was issued on the X chain. Okay, so next we wanna say, um, that's the create asset transaction. Next, we have an operation transaction. So an operation transaction is everything that a base transaction is, and then it has a variable length array of transferable operations. So what are those? Transferable operations are similar to transferable outputs and transferable inputs, right? You remember we have this generic wrapper called transferable, and then it can have four different types of inputs, SecP, SecP Mint, NFT, NFT Mint, and, or it could be sec, could be transferable outputs. It has one type, type five SecP transferable inputs, boom. Or now it can also be operations. So we have this new box called transferable operations. And what can it be? It can be four different types of operations or three, I'm sorry. What are they? You can do a SecP mint operation. So this allows you to mint um, more SecP. So if you remember, you would have already created a SecP mint output as a part of the initial state whenever you called create asset transaction. So it created the new asset and it gave you this new minting uh, output that you can use whenever you want to mint. So then you call a mint a SecP, you call a, an operation transaction and you create a SecP mint operation in which you consume that SecP mint output. And that gives you the one-time ability to mint more of this token. And then on the other side, you need to create yourself a new mint output that you can use in future mint operations. There's also uh, a different type of operation called an NFT mint operation, similar to SecP mint operation. This allows you to mint more of an NFT. Uh, same paradigm, you need to consume the NFT mint output that you created as part of the initial state when you called create asset transaction. And then there's also the NFT transfer operation, which of course allows you to transfer an NFT. Uh, these again are the AVM NFTs. And this, uh, again, you have to consume the NFT transfer uh, output that you created and you then move the NFT, transfer it, and then you create a new NFT transfer uh, output to be consumed again in the future when you want to transfer it again. So that is what explains operations. So, you know, now you have an operation transaction, you understand it can do everything that a base transaction can do. So really, I just want to keep driving that home. Everything's got the same inputs and outputs as the base transaction. So um, where is it at? Right here, the base transaction. It's got this whole data structure, if you remember. The operation transaction is all of this plus the operations. So again, whatever you can do in these transferable outputs and inputs, you can do with an operation transaction. So you can move Avox and move um, your custom token and mint more of your custom token and move or mint more of your NFT, all using the operation transactions um, and the base transaction. So operation transaction is actually really powerful, even though it looks quite simple. It just does everything the base transaction does and then allows you to do minting of NFTs and SecPs and moving of NFTs. It's pretty cool. And then lastly, you have the import transaction and the export transaction, which as I mentioned are required 
to implement to have assets you know move on the rails that exist between the virtual machines and it's a similar paradigm to what will exist in the future for cross subnet asset transfers you'll simply need to implement this interface and you'll be able to move assets back and forth across the subnets so the import transaction uh, again does everything the base transaction does and then it has a source chain and then some transferable inputs so if you remember uh, the way our cross subnet assets work is we have this atomic asset uh, UTXO set, atomic UTXO set. And whenever you export, you say, hey, I'm going to send these tokens to this address on the P chain. I'm on the X chain. I'm going to send these tokens to this address on the P chain. And it's an export transaction. And then it creates a, an atomic UTXO, which is sitting in the atomic UTXO set. And then you call this import transaction. If, if rewind that a little bit, I had just talked about exporting from the X chain to the P chain. In this particular example, it would be coming from the P chain. So in the previous step, you would have exported from the P chain. There's now an atomic UTXO set. This transaction on the X chain calls import transaction. And it says basically, hey, give me any UTXO that exists for this address coming from this, um, give me any atomic UTXO that exists for this address coming from that source chain, in this case, the P chain. And so all of a sudden, boom, you'll have your UTXO and you can import it and you just swapped assets between the P chain and the X chain. It took two steps, export on one side and import on the other. It's been our, on our roadmap for a while to have that, uh, I forget what it was called. I, I can't remember the buzzword, but it's been our, on our roadmap to have that even be one step to make it even smoother. But even two steps isn't so bad in my opinion. And so you can imagine that same exact paradigm existing for cross subnet asset transfers. So that's the import transaction. And then the export transaction is basically the same as that, right? You're going to um, everything the base transaction does. And then instead of saying, give me all the UTXO that exists for this address from that chain, you're saying, here are some assets, send it to this address on this chain over here. And it'll create an atomic UTXO that will then just chill there until somebody on the other side calls the import transaction. And the X chain, the AVM can import and export to both the P chain and the C chain. And it can even implement non, it can implement ants. I'm sorry, it can cross subnet trans, my thoughts. It can swap across the virtual machines between the X chain and the P chain and the X chain and the C chain, ants, avalanche native tokens. So not just, not just Avox, but assets which you create yourself, you can actually swap and move them uh, across the different chains using the same API. And so that's the import and the export uh, transaction. That gives you a sense of, you know, the virtual machines are just the state machines and you need these transactions to trigger the state transition functions. So each one of these, between everything you've just seen here, that does the extent of what the Avalanche virtual machine does. It does the base transaction, it sends, uh, sends Avox around, it sends SecP assets around, it does a create asset transaction. You can create new SecP assets, you can create new NFT assets. There's an operation transaction, which allows you to move NFTs and to mint more NFTs and to mint SecP assets. And then you have the import and the export, which allow you to swap assets between these different virtual machines in a way that's all super smooth. Um, and that is it for the AVM. There's obviously the platform VM, which is uh, pretty intense as well. You can imagine sort of deep diving on each one of those, which we're going to do in a future episode. And then the EVM, which is actually quite straightforward. It's just the, you know, the EVM with these import and export. But with regards to the AVM, there it is. Um, you get a sense of what it looks like. And if you wanted to build 
your own virtual machine. You can even imagine maybe some things came to your mind while I was talking about, hey, I could create a transaction which would only do that one thing and it would cause the state transition function to behave in such and such a way. Uh, this might inspire you to start doing that. So now what I want to do is I actually want to jump on over to um, my terminal and I want to run some of these scripts. So I have them even here in my notes in the order I want to run them. So I shouldn't stumble up too bad. Um, but you know how demoing goes. So let's see, let's see how this goes. So the first thing I want to do is I want to create a, um, I just want to send some Avox back and forth basically to myself. So to do that, first thing I want to do is we have this thing called the Avalanche Network Runner. And it is very akin to um, Ganache, if you use Ganache in Ethereum. This will spin you up a five node network. You can see I'm running go run examples local five node network main.go. So this is going to spin me up a five node network and it's going to, um, it's an actual five node network. There's actually five instances of Avalanche Go that's spin up here. And this is a utility method on the Avalanche Network Runner. The Avalanche Network Runner is really, really powerful actually. And you can do all kinds of stuff by spinning up your own custom networks and interact with it in a very granular way. This is just a helper script, which fires up a five node network so that I don't have to think about any of this, but um, you can really, really trick this out. I, I recommend you become very familiar with the Avalanche Network Runner. That's gonna be your best friend. Um, it'll spin up a real network of five actual Avalanche Go instances on your local host. So now we have it going, it says um, all nodes are healthy. So you can prove that by jumping on over here to um, Postman and doing something like index, or I'm sorry, info.isbootstrap the X chain. So you can see that I'm calling localhost port 9650 and I'm saying bootstrapped, and I'm passing in chain equals X. So is the X chain bootstrapped of this local network? True, is bootstrapped. So the X chain is good to go. We're good to rock here. Um, Next thing I wanted to do is I wanted to call, I wanted to get the balance. So if we go over here to like get all balances, you can see the exchange address is just a uh, variable. But if I show the code over here, this is the BEC32 address, which maps to, um, I should point this out. Let me find it. Build, build base transaction ant. No, that's Avox, right? Build base transaction Avox. Pardon me, my friends. So this is the transaction. This is the script I want to run. And there's a couple things to note here. <clears throat> um, where do we have it? We have this guy right here. So you can see I'm doing priv key equals, and then I'm, I have this private key prefix, and then this default local genesis private key which if I click through is this Ewok key. We call it Ewok because it has these, um, just making sure I'm on target here, it has these four letters at the beginning, Ewok. This key is funded on the Genesis blocks and vertexes of the X chain, P chain and the C chain a lot on this local network. So on the C chain, I'm sorry, on the X chain, it has 300 million AVOX. On the P chain, it has 30 million. And then on the C chain, it has 50 million. 
So if you use this private key, which is a constant in Avalanche.js, so this is known to the world, this is public, don't ever use this with value bearing assets. This is only for use on your local debugging network. And we have it as a constant because now in this script, we can literally just import it like that and import it into the key keychain. And now we have a funded wallet with 300 million AVOX on this local little script right here, which is very helpful, obviously. And so now you can see when I run this, it's going to um, list the number of addresses. It's going to list the addresses. And you're going to see that the one that shows is this BEC32 encoded address. And then you're going to see that it uh, is basically building this base transaction where it's sending. So it's getting all of, it's getting the balance from my single address. I only have one address. It's saying, what is my balance? If we go over here and say, get all balances, we can see we have 300 million AVOX, right? So it's going to get back. I'm technically, I'm not calling get all balances. Technically, I'm calling get balance, which is this one. And you can see again, I have the X chain address, which is my BEC32 address. And then I have the AVOX asset ID as AVOX. And so it's going to tell me that I have this many, and then this is the UTXO ID. So this is the actual transaction and the index of the output that I have this money sitting at. This is the actual key on the map, if you will. X marks the spot. And so I have all this AVOX. So in the script, I'm saying, hey, give me all that AVOX. Give me the balance of it. And now create a new output. Um, where are we at? Oh yeah, right here. So now create a new amount that is the current balance minus the fee. So currently the fee to send AVOX on the X chain is 1 million nano AVOX. It's just a hard coded fee, it's not dynamic. And we burn that, right? So input minus output equals fee to get burned. So the balance minus the, the balance sub the fee is the new amount. It should be literally all of the 300 million, which is much more uh, in nano AVOX, whatever this number is in nano AVOX, it's a big number, um, minus 1 million, minus 1 million nano AVOX. So this is 300 quadrillion, this nano AVOX is how many you have, minus 1 million is what I would expect the output of this to be. And so now we're going to send some funds. And there's one more thing I want you to notice. I'm going to log this transaction as uh, there's this to buffer and from buffer. So those are the, the methods that get called when you want to serialize these data structures down into the format, which gets posted to the full node. So that happens whenever you call issue transaction. If you dig under the hood here, to buffer gets called a little bit down the line but I'm going to log it here. I want to log this as a big hex string so that we can actually decode it together. That's something that I had mentioned to you that I wanted to show you. It's a bit tedious, but number one, it just really drives the point home. And some of you might find it interesting. I, I find it interesting and I've done it a billion times. So let's run this script and let's see if it works. So it did appear to work. It gave us a success transaction ID. So there's a couple of strings we're seeing here. You can see that this one is, um, where are we at? This one right here is CB58 encoded. So this is a base 58 encoding with a checksum. And then this one above it is hexadecimal. 
And so this is the transaction ID. So in theory, it did move some funds back and forth. So now if we go check the balance, as I mentioned, I would just expect it to be two, nine, 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 with a grip of nines right here. And so it's now 299 quadrillion, 299 million billion. I think that's correct because the nano box of a million is the fee. And so now there's something else I wanted to do. Take this hexadecimal and clean it up. We have this nice little website here, clean hex string. And now you and I, my good friend, are going to decode this hexadecimal string. Are you ready? All right, so that's what it's posted across the wire to the full node. And apparently it was successful. The full node said, yep, that's what I'm looking for. So what do we actually see? Remember I told you my eye can pick these things up. Remember I said a seven stands out to me. That's a sec P transferable output guaranteed. And remember I told you a five jumps out to me. That's a sec P transferable input. And then another one that jumps out to me is nine down here. That's a SecP credential for signing this 600 and I'm sorry, 65 byte recoverable signature. So see, I can already in my mind break this down into all the different components and we're going to do that right now. Let me make this a little bigger. Okay, so first, check, check, check. Make sure we're on the level here. Check, check, check. Check, check, check. I think we're good. Okay, so now we're going to see uh, the first two bytes is the codec ID. Where are we at? Next four bytes is going to be the type ID. If you remember zero is a, is a base transaction. The next four bytes are going to be the network ID. 0539 is 1337 in hexadecimal. If you remember, this is the 1337 network. Um, the next 32 bytes are going to be the blockchain ID. So this is the uh, X chain on the um, local network. Then next we have here, I'll even show you what I'm doing right now. This is the base transaction, right? So we just did the codec ID, which isn't on here, but it says it at the top right here. It says, some data is prepended with a codec ID that denotes how the data should be deserialized. Right now, the only valid codec ID is 0000. So you can see that's the codec ID. It's just a given. I prepended at the beginning of all these data structures which require it. Next, we have the um, type ID, which is four bytes, which is zero. Then we have four bytes, which is the network ID. And you can see that that is Right here, one, three, three, seven, which is that number again, just to really drill it home. Let's get that hex value. Let's clean it up. Let's take it and go from hexadecimal to decimal. One, three, three, seven. So that's the one, three, three, seven network. Next, we want to um, the 32 bytes for the Let's clean this up. So this is the blockchain ID. So let's take this over here, get rid of all the white spaces, convert it to CB58 from hex. And so now that QZ little F, big F, we should be able to go over here and say info.get blockchain ID for the X chain. 
And like, boom, it's that same string. So that encoded into the um, transaction is the blockchain ID. If you remember that's useful for replay protection. So then we have, if you look at the base transaction, we now are going to have a variable length array of these transferable outputs. Remember I told you there's multiple outputs and inputs. So now we come to that part of the code. So one is the variable length part. Anytime in our serialization, there's something which is a variable length. You don't know how long it's gonna be. It'll either be a four value, four or two. You'll see in the next transaction, the create asset transaction, the name and the ticker symbol are only two bytes. But most of the time it's four bytes because uh, that's a big number. And so now we have, we know for sure there's only gonna be one transferable output because the number is one. And so now this next part is transferable output one. So the first 32 bytes are the asset ID. The next four bytes are the type ID. Remember it's seven, this is SegP transferable output. The next four bytes are the one, two, three, four, are the amount. The next four bytes are the lock time. The next four bytes are the threshold. The next four bytes are the number of 20 byte addresses in this array. So there's gonna be one array, one address of 20 bytes. And if you, um, this is the public key which maps to the Ewok address. So basically this is an output saying this type, this is the asset ID. So Avox, which is a SecP transfer output of this amount, this is gonna be that two, nine, 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 whatever is available immediately. This is all zeros. The lock time means zero now. Um, and only one address needs to sign for it. It's a one of one. And then this is the array of addresses which can sign for it. There's gonna be one of them total. And here it is. It maps to your Ewok private key. So that's what that output is telling us. So next we know there's going to be a count for the number of transferable inputs because there was only one output. And the next thing of course, on the base transactions data structure is the transferable inputs. So you can even see over here, it says four bytes plus the size of them total. So the four bytes is the, the count, right? How many here are four bytes? How many here are four bytes? So it looks like there's one transferable input. So I know that the data structure is 32 bytes for the TXID, four bytes for the UTXO index, because there could be more than one UTXO in a transaction. So as an input, you're saying, my input that I want to spend was in this transaction, in this transaction ID, and out of all the UTXO, it was the first one. And then there's 32 bytes for the asset ID, and then there's four bytes for the type ID, five is the SegP transferable input. Remember I told you five and seven stand out to me. So five is the SegP transferable input, eight bytes along for the amount. So this is going to be the 300 million. Is that accurate? Let's see here. Let's clean it up. I'm going to test it. Convert that to decimal. And it was, right? So this is the input. I had expected it to be the 300 million. So I took the hex, that's the amount, the eight bytes that come after the four bytes that tell you the type ID is the amount. So I took those, I cleaned them up, meaning I got rid of the white space. And I took that number and I converted it from hexadecimal to decimal. And it converts to that. So then I would expect, remember, I would expect this, since this is the output, this should be the 299.99 version. So let's do the same thing. Let's clean it up. Did I copy that right? I think so. And then convert it from hexadecimal to, and then boom, 299.99, which is what I expected. So that's pretty cool.
So then um, the eight bytes is the amount. The next four bytes is an address index. There's an array of addresses and you, which one are you? And then the next four bytes is the actual index. So it's zero indexed. So we're the first one. That's what that means. Now we have what's going to be the memo. And remember, again, I said, if there's something that's variable length, it'll often have four bytes to tell you how long it's going to be. So the four bytes here tell you how long the memo is going to be. And we can take 2B and convert it to decimal. That means it's going to be 43 characters. But I know how this works in my mind. So I can already see this break of 1, 9, 1. And then that, I already know what that is. I know what this data structure is. This is the number of credentials. The credential type ID, 9 is SecP. The number of signatures for that credential. And then 1, the count. And then a 65 byte recoverable signature. So this is what happens when you sign a transaction. So first, let's decode what this means. So these, I'm merely positive all these bytes are going to be the 43 number of bytes that make up the memo. So let's take that. Let's clean it up, get rid of the white space. Let's take that and convert it to ASCII, hex to ASCII. Boom, it says AVM utility method, build base transaction to send AVOX. Remember how, how I told you I used a memo in nearly all of my transactions? I did it here as well. I created a buffer of that string, AVM utility method, build base transaction to send AVOX, and I wrote it as part of the memo of that transaction. And so now encoded there as hex, but we have our blockchain explorer, for example, and it shows the memo that's on transactions. And so, like I said, I use it in all of mine. I think, I, I think it's a really great feature. It's just like having a memo in a checkbook. You know, the little memo field, like, what is this for? It can, but you can encode data into this. That's what's so rad about this. You can encode 256 bytes of arbitrary data. And having seen what I've seen from 220 bytes in Bitcoin Cash and 80 bytes in Bitcoin, their entire token ecosystem exists on that alone. That's the whole special sauce. They may be doing some special some stuff with signatures um, like um, SegWit or something, but the gist of it is being able to write these arbitrary commands to these memo-like fields. And we have 256 bytes. So uh, very, very cool. And that is how the base transaction works. And if you decode it, that's what you see. So now when we go over here and we call um, get all balances, you can see that there's less now for my guy. And something I also wanted to show really quickly here, uh, I can actually prevent this transaction from running again, is up here at the top, if you want to change the network ID, it will actually change the address which gets encoded. So we use BEC32 and BEC32 has this thing here, which is the human readable part. And then it has the number one, which is our separator. And then it has the encoded uh, public key, which is BEC32 encoded. So that's the way that works. And so the human readable part can actually be changed based on what network ID you pass in here. So if you pass in either 1337 or zero, let's run this again. It should only uh, print that address. Yeah, I don't mind if there's an error. I just care about the address. Um, how did I screw up? Uh, 
Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so if you do zero or one, three, three, seven, you get X custom. If you do one, two, three, four, five, you will actually get local. Local. false here that might make it a little bit more pretty if you do um one you will get of course avox this is mainnet avox if you do surprise if you do five of course you'll get fuji that is our uh, test net And then these are just there for historical reasons. These networks don't exist anymore, but this is what was on the scene when I first joined two years ago. We had the Borealis testnet and we had Cascade. So if you uh, put in the number two, you'll get Cascade. And so these are, we did the names of mountains in alphabetical order. So we have Cascade. We next had a D, which was Denali. So if you put in the network ID of three, you'll get Denali. If you put in the network of four, you'll then get Everest. Everest was a thing, believe it or not. It doesn't exist anymore, but Manhattan was a network. So zero today is custom. Zero and one, three, three, seven are custom. But zero was actually, so there's Everest if you do four, and then five is Fuji, right? So five is our testnet. That's what's live today. Uh, Manhattan was zero. So right before we went live on the main net, I think the 48 hours or maybe even the 24 hours before we went live, we had network ID zero, which was Manhattan. And that was our main net, like getting ready to push the go button, you know what I mean? And launch to the moon. It was a pretty exciting time to launch the network, to launch an actual blockchain network. It was amazing. Mad props to everybody who was part of that journey. Woo! All right, so that's our base transaction. I just showed you how you can swap out the human readable part of your address by simply changing the network ID that you pass in. And then, you know, same exact private key I'm importing. And you can see because it's still um, 18 JMA8, 18 JMA8 after the one, which is the, so the human readable part, then the one is the separator. The only thing that's different at the end is the checksum because the checksum is driven by the human readable part. And so since the human readable part changes, it changes the fingerprint of the overall data structure, right? The hash or the, the fingerprint. And so that's what's going on there. But you can tell it's the same private key because the first parts of it are all the same before you add the checksum at the end. So next um, we want to do a, I have it in my notes, a create asset transaction. And so this is going to allow us to mint, to create our own SecP asset and if we go open it up, we can see that it's called test token and has the ticker symbol of test. And we're just going to do a denomination. Um, so now I am actually, I have to create some initial states. You remember I told you initial states allows me to create a mint output if I want so I can mint more in the future or I can even hand out some of these tokens to people in the beginning. And that's what I'm doing here. So you can see I have initial state, I'm adding one output. So I'm creating an output and it's gonna create 507 of these new test tokens and it's going to send them. Do I only have one private key here? I do, so it's just me. It's the guy who has the 
the Ewok key, let's call it the Ewok key, is going to send itself 570 of these tokens. So right after I run this, when I go to get all balances, I'll see not only my Avox token, it's going to be minus one fee here because we're about to pay a fee to create an asset, which isn't free on the exchange. Do I have the fee schedule here? Is this it? No. Oh, what is this? The fee schedule. Yes, on the exchange to create an asset, it costs 0 0.01 Avox. So we're going to pay this plus this, the fee, the normal fee of 1 um, million nano Avox. And so here we go. Let's make sure everything is in order. And then it also creates a SECP mint output. Remember, I told you if I want to mint any of these in the future, so the SECP mint output is part of the transferable outputs. I had initially said it was part of the initial states. That's not the case. So the initial states is only the amount of uh, the new asset that I'm creating and immediately giving to myself or the Ewok address. The SECP mint output is actually just part of the transferable outputs. So just clarity on that. And then same thing here, I'm going to actually issue it as a buffer so and a hex data string so we can decode it together. And then I'm also going to send it out to the network and uh, hopefully create an asset. So it appears that worked. And I got this transaction ID, which is going to be the asset ID. So now if I come over here and I say, get all balances, sure enough, I have 507 of this R4CK asset, which just got created with the same transaction ID, R4CK. So that was totally successful. So now we have a new type of asset. If we come over here to the Postman collection, we can even do a um, get asset description and pass in the new TXID. Let me get the whole one there. And run this, place this guy here, run this. And you can see this is test token with a ticker symbol TEST. It's the denomination three, and this is the asset ID. So you can even take that asset ID, which is the transaction ID, and that's actually the asset ID of this new, new asset, which we created, which you saw when we called get all balances where there's 507. And we can mint them, which we're gonna show in a second because I wanted to show something else pretty cool. But before we do that, let's do the good old step of debugging this together. We're gonna take it over here and clean it up make it more easy to visually parse. We're now gonna to go to the readme. We're gonna decode this. So again, um, two bytes for the codec ID, four bytes for the type ID. If you remember, create asset transaction is of type one, which we can see if we go right here. And then it's going to have these following components, everything that the base transaction has, right? So it's going to have everything the base transaction has. Let's bring that up. Make this a little bit easier to visually parse. So now we have the base transaction and then we have the create asset transaction. So to do the create asset transaction, first let's decode the base transaction parts. We have the network ID, or we have the type ID, which is one, a create asset transaction. We have four bytes for the network ID. If you remember, 0539 is one through three seven. 
We have 32 bytes for the blockchain ID, which if you remember is the blockchain of the X chain on the local network. Then we have the number of transferable outputs. There's one, it has 32 bytes for the asset ID, four bytes for the type ID, seven if you remember is SecP transferable output, eight bytes for the amount, eight bytes for the lock time, four bytes for the threshold, four bytes for the number of addresses in this array of addresses, 20 bytes for the single address, which matched to the Ewok key. So this output again is telling us that this Avox output of type SecP transferable output of this amount, which is going to be um, the 29999 amount, um, is available immediately to spend by this one single address. The input that we're consuming, there's one of them. The 32 bytes is the asset ID. The four bytes is, or is the TX ID, I'm sorry. The four bytes is the UTXO index. The 32 bytes is the asset ID. The five, four bytes is the type ID. Five is the SecP transferable input. The eight bytes is the amount. This is the 29999. So this is going to be the 29999 minus the fee, the output. The input is the 2999. Um, the four bytes is the address index counts, there's one, and then the next is the single address index. Then you're going to have a memo. It's going to be 36 bytes, or I'm sorry, 36 is the hexadecimal value. What is that in decimal? 54. So we might have to count this out, maybe. I might be able to get away with it like this. Actually, I can do it like this. Again, my, my brain knows the patterns. So I know that the, after the memo field, they're going to go, uh, after the memo field, we'll no longer be doing the base transaction stuff. Then we'll be doing the special stuff, which is special to the create asset transaction. And I know the first is the name and they do two bytes and then the length of the name and two bytes and the length of the string. So I looked for the two bytes that looked like it was a length of a name, nine. That is definitely it and I'll prove it. And then I looked for the next two bytes that look nine bytes later and then it's two bytes that looks like it's the ticker symbol and it's four. And then the next single byte is the denomination. If you remember, it was type three. And so let me prove this is correct. First off, this is going to be the memo. I go and I clean this up, remove the white spaces and convert it from hex to ASCII. And of course it says AVM utility method, build create asset transaction to create an ant, an avalanche native token. And you can see that that is here, I did the same thing. I created a buffer which of the memo and I passed it in when I created the transaction. So that is definitely the memo. And this is definitely the name of this token. So if I go and I clean that up, and take that hex string and convert it to ASCII, it's test token, which is correct. And then lastly, I know that these four are going to be the ticker symbol, T-E-S-T. Let's clean it up. And then um, convert it to ASCII, T-E-S-T, all caps even. So beautiful. And that's the denomination. And so this is, so now um, if you go look at the create asset transaction, specification. We did the name, we did the symbol, we did the denomination, right? It's a single byte, three. This is a byte, two ASCII symbols is one byte. 
Um, now we have an initial states, an array of initial states. So we have one, that's the length of it. Similar pattern as before, other than these two, as I mentioned earlier, the create asset transaction has an example of a, a length counter, which is less than four. In this case, it's the name and the ticker symbol. It's only two bytes each. But most of the time when you're telling how long the uh, item coming is about to be, it's four bytes. So similar to up here when you have transferable outputs and you have the four byte counter, there's one, same four bytes for inputs. So now this is the initial states and it has four bytes that let you know there's gonna be one initial state. And then an initial state, what does an initial state contain? Initial state right there, perfect. So it has a feature extension ID, which is four bytes. So it's zero. So if you remember, I told you there's three feature extensions. There's setP, which is like variable and fixed cap assets. There's NFT, which if this is a one, this will be creating an NFT. And then there's something called properties, which is actually the two uh, feature extensions, the third one. And that allows you to add arbitrary key value pairs to your outputs and your addresses, I should say. So you can do something like say every single address that's a validator on this network has to have certain uh, KYC AML licenses attached or something because I'm doing this private uh, network. So basically you can add key value pairs to your different addresses. That's called properties. For now we're doing SecP. So the first four bytes is the feature extension ID. And then you can see it has an array of outputs. And so basically these are the different components. Let me just break it down. So this is um, the number of outputs, there's two. And then the first output has a type ID of six. So this is the mint output. If you remember, we created a mint output, which allows us to mint. So it has a lock time of zero, it has a threshold of one, and then one out of this array of addresses can sign for it. And this of course is the Ewok address. So that's the mint output. And then we have type seven, which we know is the SegP transferable output. Remember I told you seven jumps out to me. So this I know for sure, 01FB is the number 507. So let's clean that up. And it goes converted to decimal. So 507, so if you remember, um, whenever we were minting this token, whenever we were creating the asset, the 507 was the amount. And so then it's gonna have eight for the lock time, four for the threshold, four for the number of addresses and 20 bytes for the single address, which again is the Ewok address. And then lastly, there is a number of credentials, an array of credentials. So here's the count, there's gonna be one credential. It's type, here's the first credential, it's type is type nine, that's a SecP credential. And then it has an array of signatures. How many signatures does it have? It has one. And then that is a 65 byte recoverable signature. And so that is everything you're seeing in this hex string for create asset transaction decoded. Let's go a little bit farther. Next, I have the SecP Mint. So I wanted to show, like right now, we have 507 of this asset. And I know I wanted to mint some more here. Make sure that works. Is this the SecP Mint? It is. So I just want to visually scan this with my eyes, make sure everything appears to be good. We need to put in the right asset ID. So that would have been wrong if this is the asset ID. 
I need to make sure that's correct here. Boom. As you see, I have a memo here, so we should expect the memo as well. Dement and ant, which is what we're doing. Same thing, getting the balance. How many addresses are there? Just one, the default Ewok key, so I don't have to worry about anything there, only one. And then I'm minting 54321. So currently there's 507. We should have 507 plus this after I run this script. And of course, I'm also going to console it as a big buffer so that we can decode it again together. So there you go. It says successful. If I come over here and say get all balances, there's now a bunch of these 507 plus the 54321. So that's what it looks like to mint something. Here's what it looks like in hexadecimal to mint something. What does that look like in the individual components? Well, looks like this. First, we give white spaces between the individual bytes. Next, we go to a chalkboard where we can pull this thing apart. And here we go, kids, let's have fun. So the first two bytes, anybody, anybody? Bueller, codec ID. The next four bytes is going to be, which one is this? Anybody remember? This is the, oh yes, this is the operation transaction. That's what's cool about this. In order to mint, you have to do an operation transaction. So that takes us to the next place because I wanted to say type two is what an operation transaction is, right? Boom. So base transaction is zero. Create asset transaction is one. Operation transaction is two. You can see an operation transaction just does everything a base transaction does, and then it has a variable linked array of transferable operations. And so it has the number of, uh, I'm sorry, this is the code, this is the codec ID. This is the uh, type ID. Two is the operation transaction. The next four bytes are the network ID 0539 is 1337. The next 32 bytes are the blockchain ID. So this is the uh, X chain on the local network. Then again, the number of transferable outputs, there's one. It's going to have 32 bytes for the asset ID, four bytes for the type ID. Seven is a SegP transferable output. One, two, three, four. It's going to have eight bytes for the amount, eight bytes for the lock time, four bytes for the threshold, four bytes for the number of addresses in this array. 20 bytes for the single 20 byte address in that array, which maps to the Ewok key. Next, it's going to have the number of transferable inputs, and that's one. It's going to have 32 bytes for the TXID, four bytes for the UTXO index, 32 bytes for the asset ID, four bytes for the type ID, five is SecP transferable input, four byte, I'm sorry, eight bytes for the amount, one byte, four bytes, I should say, for the address index count, so there's going to be one of them, and then the single address index. Next, it's going to have the memo, so it's going to have 31 fields for the memo, but if you remember, we're going to be looking for a variable length array of transferable operations after that, so I know there's going to be a number one, because that's how many operations I have, so I can again just visually look for that and presume that this is going to be the memo bytes, which we can take over here and clean up and convert from hexadecimal to ASCII. And sure enough, it says AVM utility method build segment, build SecP mint transaction to mint an ant. And if you remember, that's exactly what we saw when we were in there because this is in fact 
the memo. Beautiful stuff. Um, so next we have the variable length array. Let's bring it up you now of operations. So we have four, which tells us there's one. And then we have the operations, which this is going to be, let's get over here, sorry. We have the variable, uh, we have the operations. And then this type is a secp mint operation. If you guys remember, that's what we were doing, minting some of these secps. So let me find that. Boom, secp mint operation, it should be type eight. So let's see what it is. So here's type eight. Address indices. See, break out everything I recognize. So I know for sure this two and nine is the credentials and signatures. I know how that all looks. That's for sure all of those things, just sort of get those out of the way. I know what this is. Does this work here? I don't know what that is. This is an output right here. As you can see, an amount, a lock time, threshold, a number of signatures, or a number of addresses, and then the address. What is this map to? So this is 54321. Got it. So this is me minting these new tokens. So this is what it looks like to do a. Um, create uh, an operation transaction. So at the end, we have this variable length array of operations, which is what's happening here, where we're actually getting this type eight, you see right here, which is the secp mint operation. And then it's got inside of it, the mint output, which is happening right here. You can see it has a, where is it at? It has eight for the lock time, one for the threshold, one for the signature, and one for the number of addresses. So this data structure right here is the secp mint operation. And then right here, you have the transferable output. And then you have two credentials, one of type nine, which is a secp credential. And it has one 65 byte recoverable signature. And then you have another um, signature here as well. And it has one, I'm sorry, you have another credential here, also SECP. And it has one signature, which is a 65 byte recoverable signature as well. Okay. If you make this far, you're, you're amazing. We have a couple more transactions to go and then we're gonna wrap this up. So the next one is, the base transaction with the ant. And the reason I wanted to show this because I might need to restart over. What I think I need to do here is I need to restart over 
fire it up, call a single transaction, which is to create the asset, and then plug that transaction ID, the asset ID, which is gonna be different. It's gonna start with a Y, put it into this script, and then I can show you what's kind of cool about this. So let me do that real quick. I'm gonna restart the network. So since I'm using the Avalanche Network Runner, that literally just means me killing it with Control C, and then me restarting it with Go Run Examples Local Five Node Network Main.Go, and it will that quickly fire me up another Five Node Network that I can then go over to is Bootstrapped, and it says True already. So that fast it's found me up a Five Node Network. So now I want to do the first thing, which is to create an asset transaction. So that was a success. And like I said, it would start with a Y. I knew that because I did this the other day. They're all deterministic transactions are. So if you put in the same input, you'll always get the same output. So I know that if I run these commands in a certain order, I'll end up with different transaction IDs along the way that my mind just kind of remembers uh, because I've done this so many times. So now we have this, <clears throat> this, if we go to get all balances, we'll see that our guy has 507 of that particular token. Now here's what I want to do. I want to make sure that this token is plugged into this transaction. Make sure the TX ID is correct because there's something going on here. Oh, do I not even care what the TX ID is in here? Uh, okay, I might not even care what the asset ID is. I'm just looping over it and saying, if it's not a type six, which means presumably it's not, um, a mint output. So it's probably going to be of type seven. Do this. And then here's where I send the amount sub 100. And I'm sending it. So basically, what's happening here is let me give you the super high level. I created another private key. And you can see the, the, um, it maps to this address right here. Okay. So let me make that super clear. I'm going to put this there, this here, so I can get the key here, the address, I should say, there. And so now I know um, I have two private keys, and they're mapping to these two addresses. And I have them both in the same keychain, and I can access them by using uh, like array notation. So what I'm doing is the first the one I'm sending the tokens from, I'm sending them from the first address who has that big balance of 507. I'm sending them all to address number two, which you can see that's how I'm doing it. I'm passing in an array of one single address, which is the second address that I'm importing. I'm sending that all the tokens minus 100. So what I'm gonna show you here is that you can actually burn these SECP tokens as well. Because if you remember input minus output equals total. So if I have 507 total that I've ever issued, and I'm about to send 407 to this person and burn 100, then what, the reason I'm pointing this out is you could extend the Avalanche Virtual Machine and plug in a new feature extension, which allows you to take advantage of the fact that you can issue your own ants and burn them for fees or give them to uh, validators for fees or whatever you wanna do. Uh, I just wanted to demonstrate that that is in fact possible. So here we have, we're about to do that. And then the change right here, I'm doing the change output which is gonna have the entire Avox amount minus the fee, so that same pattern, but I'm sending it all back to the first, the Ewok address. So you're right, I have two addresses in this X address array, 
Um, the first one is Ewok. It's going to get the Avox money back, but it's getting rid of all of the new tokens we just created. And all of them, SANS 100, are going to sent to the second address, but none of the Avox. So it's not going to have an Avox balance. So let's see this in action. And then at the end, um, oh yeah, there's something else I wanted to show that's cool. So people had been asking how to create a transaction ID without sending the transaction to a full node. This is the way it works. First, you get a transaction and you get a buffer of it. Remember, a buffer is a JavaScript data structure for dealing with binary data. Then you SHA-256 that buffer, and then you CB58 encode the uh, SHA-256 hash, and that's how you get a transaction ID. So here at the end of this, when I run this, it's going to say generated transaction ID and success transaction ID. And you're going to see that the one I generated using that formula Transaction buffer, SHA-256, CB58 encoded, matches the one that comes back from the full node. So let's do that real quick. So this is base transaction ant. So sure enough, generated transaction, Z95, success transaction, Z95. So they matched. And you can see, like I said, I had that array of two addresses. The first one was the um, Ewok one, and then the second one is that private key I just figured spun up. So now when I go over here for Ewok, I should see none of these YC coins and minus a million nano Avox for Avox, sure enough. And for the other address, I should see 407 of the YC coins and no Avox and 407. So there you go. I burnt 100 of these YC coins. But fear not, because of course I can do this. The SECPI mint, where do I put in the asset ID? So if you remember, I believe I should be able to do this. It might fail, but I think I can come up uh, and just mint a bunch of tokens because it was a variable capped asset, right? So I just fixed, I minted five, four, three, two, one more of them, ha So that's pretty cool. And so now there's just a few more transactions. Thank you for bearing with me, dear folks. Now we want to show what it looks like to export and import. So next we're going to do an export transaction. Let's start over. We're just going to show export and importing Avox, but you can do this with ants as well. The export and the import transaction have a asset ID field. And you, instead of passing in Avox, you pass in this YC coin that we just created. And it's the exact same API. You're just transferring a a SECP asset instead of Avox, and that's all Avox is, is a SECP asset. So you can actually swap ANTS, Avalanche Native Tokens, across um, the different virtual machines. It's pretty cool. So is this bootstrapped? Do I have a balance back to 3 million, 300 million? All right, so we're good. We're back in a good state. So now what I wanted to show is that on the AVM, if we say get all balances, we know we should see a 300 million Avox balance. But did you know that if you go to the platform VM and say get balance of the P chain address, which is just the same as the C chain address, custom 18 JMA, but with a P uh, chain prefix, but it's the same private key derived to the BEC32 address, so it's the same. You can say, what is my balance here? And as I mentioned, you have 30 million here. And then if you go to the EVM, you can say get balance. That's your C chain address, which is uh, the Ewok key encoded 
as hexadecimal for the Ethereum virtual machine, you can see it gives you this amount, which is a hexadecimal value that you can then take, of course, and convert to good old decimal using this tool. And it gives you that many, 50 million AVOX on the C chain. So you have a lot of AVOX to play around with. What we want to do right now is transfer the AVOX from the X chain to the P chain, because imagine we wanted to stake it or something like that. So here we're going to um, log the hex at the end because I wanted to show you that. And then we're basically going to transfer all of the, um, let's see. Sorry. We're going to be transferring all of the amount. I just wanted to make sure that that's correct. The amount is the balance of the fee, right? So we're doing the same thing. We're getting the balance for this one singular address. There's only one. We're importing it into the P chain and the uh, X chain because it's the same key. We just need to be able to reference it on both sides, X and P. We're creating an output. Uh, we're setting the balance as the amount, the total amount sub the fee. So we're sending everything over. So that's what we should expect to see after this, just sending everything over. And so that was a success. And if we come over here now, we can see that if we go to the AVM get all balances, if you remember before it was 300 million, it's not gonna be no more, boom, it's not. So now if we come over to the, we have, a, we have an atomic UTXO and we can actually prove that by getting our, P chain address and we can go to like platform.getutxos you can say for this address that's the right address I actually want to make it save it as that and say coming from the X chain, give me any atomic UTXO. Is that not how it looks? Kitties? I'm sure I'm good. Give me one second here. The chain address. Oh, uh, you know what I might need? Um, UTXO, where's that? I'll just use that for now. Um, so if I go to environments, local hosts, where's the P chain? Why did that not work? It did work. Okay, so I'm going to say it like that. I like variables better than hard-coded strings. So now you can see this p-chain address, which is the same, you know, one 18 JMA. It has this one UTXO that's in the atomic UTXO set, right? Because I'm asking for a p-chains UTXOs coming from the x-chain. So this is, is an, atomic, uh, an atomic UTXO. And you can actually decode a UTXO just like anything else. So let's take it and let's clean it up. If you look at this, there's a spec for UTXO. 
So let's take this and take it over to our whiteboard and dissect it. What do we got? Get rid of that prefix. The first is going to be a codec ID. I'm sure of that. Yep, codec ID. And then a 32 byte TX ID. And then four byte output index, which is zero. So it's the first one. Then 32 byte asset ID, I'm guessing. Yep, asset ID. And then an output. And I recognize it already. Good old type seven. Anybody remember what that is? Set P transferable output. Good job, students. It's got eight bytes for the amount, eight bytes for the lock time, four bytes for the threshold, four bytes for the number of addresses in the array, and 20 bytes for the single Ewok address in the array. So this is a UTXO. This is the atomic UTXO, which is sitting there. We can see how much it's worth by taking the value, which is eight bytes, cleaning it up, removing the white spaces, converting from hexadecimal to decimal, and see that sure enough, it's the 29999. So it's all of our AVOX from this exchange, 300 million minus the original fee that we paid to create the asset. And so now what we want to do is on the corresponding side, we want to call the um, platforms build import chain. Did I decode this? I'm not sure that I did. Let's decode this. That's part of the journey. So we decoded the UTXO, but we didn't decode the transaction. So we have to do it. That's what we're here to learn. You can fast forward if it's annoying or um, you don't want to see it again, but I like to do it over and over because it really helps me have an intuition about how these virtual machines serialize. So now we have the um, two bytes for Kodak, four bytes for type ID. So if four is a, an export transaction, Four bytes for the network ID, 0539, of course, is the 1337 in hexadecimal. 32 bytes for the blockchain ID, that's the um, X chain on the local network. Now we have the number of transferable outputs. So that's interesting, there's zero. Okay, no outputs on this time. The number of transferable inputs, there's one. So then you have 32 bytes for the uh, asset ID, four bytes for the um, UTXO index, 32 bytes for the 10 TX ID, four bytes for the asset ID. I'm sorry, for the type ID, five is a SecP transferable input, uh, eight bytes for the amount, four bytes for the address index count, and then the single address index is four. Then you have the memo length. And then I might be able to even divvy this up just by looking at it with my eyes. Again, I suspect something about this bunch of zeros. If I had to guess, that is a, a destination chain. So I'm sending them to the P chain, whose 32 byte identifier happens to be all zeros. And then there's going to be a one and then 32 bytes. And then I can see a seven. So that's the type ID of a SecP transferable output. And that means I have eight bytes for the amount, eight bytes for the lock time, four bytes for the threshold, four bytes for the number of addresses in the array. 20 bytes for the single Ewok address. And then you have the credentials. So you have the number of credentials. There's going to be one. The very first credentials type ID is nine. That's SecP. That has a number of signatures of one. And then it has in its array a single 65 byte recoverable signature. And so that is how you decode an export transaction. It didn't have any um, transferable outputs. 
but it had an exportable output. So this is the atomic UTXO that we just created. So now we can, uh, I don't need to decode the pchain's import transaction. All I wanna do is show that if we go to the pchain get balance, there's that amount. And if we then run the platform import from the X chain, you can see it was a success. And if I run this, it'll have the increased balance. So it did just import it. I don't need to decode that because we're going to deep dive on the P chain at a different time. Now what we want to do is we want to export it back from the P, uh, the P chain to the X chain. So now we're going to run this script. And so that was a success. If I come over and check the balance now, now that address on the P chain has no balance, I could go look and there's an atomic UTXO for the um, X chain address. So if I get over here and get, get UTXO, I wanna go to the AVM and say get UTXO. And it's going to be for the X chain address. And I want to check for ones that are coming from the P chain. And so there's a single one. It's an atomic UTXO. I can take it over here. I can clean it up a little. I can take it to the whiteboard to dissect. And we can see that once we get rid of the prefix, it has two bytes for a codec ID. 32 bytes here, we'll go look at them. Uh, is this the AVM? Yes, UTXO. It has a codec ID. It has 32 bytes for a transaction ID. It has four bytes for a uh, output index. It's gonna have 32 bytes for an asset ID. It's then gonna have four bytes for a type ID. Seven is a SegP transferable output. It's gonna have eight bytes for the amount, eight bytes for the luck time, four bytes for the threshold, four bytes for the uh, number of 20 byte addresses in the array, and then a single 20 byte Ewok address in the array. So that's the um, atomic UTXO, which is waiting to be imported back into the uh, X chain. And then so that is with this step. Let's make sure it's looking all good on the insides. Everything's looking good here. We got the singular key. We got a memo. We're importing everything properly and we're logging it. So now if I come over to the AVM's get all balances, it says it's a success. And now look, we have more than the original 300 million because we have what we sent over from the P chain just now. So that is literally everything. If you made it that far, you are an absolute outrageous champion. And so um, now you get a sense of how VMs fit into the Avalanche ecosystem. What exactly is a VM? It's the application level logic of your blockchain. What does it do? It helps guide the state transition functions between the different states by providing input from the users. And so um, I think that's it for now. Um,
maybe a little bit of a alpha of something that's on um, the next build of AJS. Should I do it? Should I do it? Check this out. If I restart the five node network. So in the next build of AJS, we're gonna have the vertex serialization. So a vertex, and remember I told you a vertex is to a uh, DAG as a block is to a linear chain. It's a connection of a collection of transactions. And so now you'll be able to use the index API and say index.getLastCollected. Um, get last accepted, I'm sorry, index.getLastAccepted. And it'll give you back a data structure of bytes that you can then decode into a vertex. And then you can say, it'll give you a number of parents and a parent ID, and then you can fetch get container by index and give the parents ID. And then you can decode that and get all the transaction out of it and get the next parent, the next parent, and you can actually reverse traverse the DAG from the outermost leaf vertex all the way back to the Genesis vertex. And so that's what you're seeing here. I called it, and now you'll look in this, this is arrays of transactions. You'll see export transactions, import transactions, base transaction, create asset transaction. These are, each one of these is a vertex. You can see the height here at the top, it's slowly counting down. And then this is a vertex data structure. It's got the codec ID, the blockchain ID, the height, uh, the, an array of parents. It's got an array of addresses and an array of restrictions. And so um, this is a reverse traverse of the DAG. And so this is on deck in the next build of AJS. All right, if you guys made it this far, you're an absolute out of this world champion. Thank you so much for all your support. Um, it's been a really great journey so far and we're just getting started. So we'll be back next week with more great Avalanche content. Thank you so much from Snowflake to Avalanche and through consensus to the stars. Thank you so much, everybody. Peace.